This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. Good morning. Good morning. So I was mentioning yesterday that this whole December 8th thing is uh, basically a mistake. But the fact that we're sitting here this morning means at least we're making this mistake along with all the other Soto Zen practitioners in the world who are also sitting in their monasteries this morning and who also celebrate Buddha's awakening tomorrow morning. Somehow it feels better to me to be making this mistake with the worldwide Sangha than to be striving to be a really good Zen student, right, and to get it right. We embrace the Soto Zen tradition of not only mistakes, but making mistake after mistake. And Dogen talked about this in, uh, in a talk he gave, um, on Buddha's Awakening Day. He said, 2,000 years later, we are the descendants. 2,000 years ago, Shakyamuni was our ancestral teacher. He's muddy and wet from chasing after the waves. It can be described like this. But there is also this principle of the way. Make one mistake after another. What's this like? Whether Buddha is present or not, I trust he is right under our feet. Face after face is Buddha's face. Fulfillment after fulfillment is Buddha's fulfillment. I love this description, first of all, the mistake after mistake, is the principle of the way. Okay, so this is the rule you have to follow. Make one mistake after another. And I love this description of Buddha and Buddha's presence. I trust he is right under our feet. In a way, it's like saying Buddha is as common as dirt. And Buddha is supporting us the way the great earth is supporting us. In the Lotus Sutra, they tried to talk about this um, presence of the Buddha in our practice, supporting us. Um, and their imagery was that, well, Buddha had an immeasurable lifetime. It's basically like he lived forever. I like Dogen's imagery better. 
In fact, Dogen says, whether Buddha is present or not present, present, whether he lived forever or not, I trust that he's right under our feet. He's here in our practice. And the Buddha way is to make one mistake after another. Um, if we really have the aspiration to follow Buddha's example, awaken and to help sentient beings. This is really a good way to descri describe that aspiration. Let's make one mistake after another. In Japanese, it's uh, the phrase is shoshaku jushaku. Shaku is a file, you know, like you file something. Shoshaku Shaku means to take a file and to file it. To file a file. <laughs> Defile a file. <laughs> you know, if you file a file, it kind of ruins the file. <laughs> One mistake after another. If we practice Zen with the attitude of doing the right thing, we're in trouble. This may seem an odd thing for me to say because I'm telling you I'm emphasizing forms and I'm telling you about shashu, you know, but that's fine. Don't take it as, I've got to get this right. Just take it as, okay, one mistake after another. You know, our Soto Zen tradition is uh, sometimes described as a tradition of igi, Japanese word igi, means dignified presence. Or, uh, in one translation, it's awesome presence. <laughs> so, awesome presence is kind of the core of Soto Zen activity. You know, we bring our presence to every activity we do, and it's pretty awesome. We know that we will awaken just by doing what we're doing, wholeheartedly and completely. In fact, the doing of it is awakening. And Soto Zen teaches us to do this. One of the ways it teaches us is it, um, it does lean towards ceremony, you know, various ceremonies we do. Um, you guys are in a good position, especially you who um, haven't been practicing for a couple decades, because um, you can't do our ceremonies just by habit. You have to pay attention. Oh, that bell rings, that means I have to do this, right? So that's great. In order to have awesome presence, we have to be aware of what's going on now and bring ourselves to it completely. So we have to be awake now. Our practice is not one of practicing so that we will awaken someday. We have to be awake now. In fact, Dogen talked about 
there is a circle of the way. Aspiration, practice, awakening, even nirvana are on this circle and there's no gap between any of them. You can't have one with all, without all the rest. And one aspect of this circle that I want to uh, try to clarify today is the aspect of aspiration. Individually, we have to clarify our aspiration in practice. Otherwise, if we don't do that, how will we know when we've strayed? Uh, Dogen in Tukansan Zengi says, if you make one misstep, you stray from the way that's directly before you. So how do we know if we've strayed from the way, if we've made uh, one mistake? We have to know our aspiration. It's only our effort to sit upright that lets us know if we're slouching. You know, our tradition is really one of trying to be upright in all of our activities. Not that we get it right, but we lean in the direction of upright. That's all we have to do. Not do it right, but be upright. And we call our funda fundamental aspiration in practice bodhicitta in Sanskrit. A lot of times translated way-seeking mind. We have the aspiration of, of uh, seeking the way. Bodhi you know, means awakening. It's, it's the root of uh, uh, the word for Buddha. Chitta means a mental condition or a state of mind or just mind. And uh, Dogen's teaching is that the aspiration for awakening, bodhicitta, only arises from the awakened mind. Bodhicitta generates bodhicitta. So all realization is the realization of what is originally here. We aspire to wake up to our original selves. Wake up to this moment that's already here. And that's what Buddha did. He woke up to himself. You know, the story is he saw the morning star. And he awakened at that point. And he awakened to, to the certainty that he didn't do it alone, but he was one with the great earth and all beings. Now, in our self-centered minds, we might seek something that looks like awakening, maybe because it would make us feel special, or appear to be awakened. One of my favorite Zen phrases is, looks like good, meaning it looks like it. <laughs> I'm not sure if the person is into it, but it looks like it.
and we can just stumble into this. You know, we read all, all about people, you know, awakening in their meditation or while when they hear a, a pebble hitting bamboo and we say to ourselves, yeah, I want to have one of those experiences. Or maybe we have had one of those experiences. And so we say to ourselves, I want more. I want to have another one. Right. Sometime when we think of a awakening, we're, we're looking for a Saul on the road to Damascus kind of experience. Which is more the Instagram version of awakening. I, I'm not on Instagram, but I understand you take the picture that shows the best light, you know. Here you are, you're the happiest person in the world, or whatever it is, right? Uh, I'm making fun of it, but actually the awakening of Saul is one of the great awakening experiences in, recorded in Western history, and I, I want to share it with you. I bet you didn't think you'd be hearing from the ex of the apostles today. Saul, um, correct me if I'm wrong about this, was a tax collector, and he, um, so he was working for the Romans, and he was um, uh, persecuting the early Christian groups. So Saul was on a journey to Damascus, and as he um, neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who, whom you are persecuting. And Jesus said, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard a sound, but they couldn't see anyone around. Paul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. That's interesting. He must have closed his eyes. Maybe to protect them against the blinding light. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And, and uh, for three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. And then at that time there was a person in Damascus, Ananias. And he received a divine revelation too. And this revelation was instructing him to go visit Saul. And he was told, and Ananias was told, Saul is at the house of Judas on the street called Straight. Now this couldn't have been Judas Iscariot because he was dead already by the time this happened. He's at the house of Judas and at a street called Straight. <laughs> I suppose, you know, it, this is ancient times, Roads followed the contour of the land, and they probably curved, even in the cities. Not like Chicago, a grid, you know. Uh, but there was, a, I guess, one street that must have been straight. And he was at the street called Straight. And we have to wonder, did it intersect with a street called Narrow? But there he was, at the street called Straight. 
And so Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I think this is a pretty interesting story. I like the fact that there's like two phases to Saul's awakening. The first part on the road to Damascus has the flash of light, the, the flashy experience, and um, it's dramatic, right? But Saul ends up blind and unable to care for himself, <laughs> right? Much less do any good for anybody else. This is not quite our idea of body and mind dropping away. This is more like body and mind exploding. <laughs> you know, he was incapacitated by this awakening experience. And the flashy part is not what we're aiming for. We should be wary of it, in fact. It forced Saul to close his eyes to protect himself. And maybe we should ask the question, well, when do we close our eyes? Sometimes we can recognize uh, that we have a choice. We might feel the impulse to turn away and we recognize that we have a choice. Do we conform to our impulses? Do we conform to our personal narratives about what's going on here? <clears throat> our limited understanding? Do we conform to the rules we've always had to get through our life, like don't make mistakes? Or is this a chance to open up to the dark? not so easy to make that choice because our personal stories and our narratives and our rules are usually there to protect us. And sometimes opening up to the Dharma means relinquishing that and kind of taking another look. This, this issue of protecting us is really worth, worth investigating. Uh, the derivation of the word protect is very interesting. It's a conjunction of pro, in Latin, you know, means for or in support of, and tegere. I'm not sure how to pronounce Latin, actually. I'll pronounce it as if it were Italian. Tegere, which is the root for toga, to protect, toga, right? Or also the root for the thatch on the roof. So it means to cover. So protect or protegere means to be in favor of togas. 
And actually, protect is the antonym of open. To protect ourselves is to limit ourselves. To close our eyes because the light is so blinding is to limit ourselves. So we have this dynamic in our lives and in our practice that goes between opening and closing, closing and opening, protecting and freeing. When I was in college, I was in an intro psych course, which of course had a big effect on me, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it was interesting. I, I had a great professor. He was such an iconoclast. Um, he pointed out that learning is the decreasing variability of response to a stimulus. So what? Learning is like opening up, right, to stuff and expanding. He said, no. Learning is the decreasing variability of response. So when the rat comes into the chamber and immediately goes to press the bar, the variability of his response has decreased because he used to go and sniff here and explore there. And, but once he's learned, he's now following the rules. So, Sometimes, you know, our decision to open up or to practice is the decision not to follow the rules, not to protect ourselves. Buddha's decision was to give up the protections of wealth and status. Literally, he left toga and thatch behind. And every difficulty he faced was a challenge. And the challenge was how to maintain openness in the face of adversity. was really true about his ascetic practices, right? Because he really got into mistreating, we would say, mis mistreating the body. The, uh, the understanding of ascetic practices at that time was that ascetic practices would subdue the body. It would kind of cause us to not care about the body anymore. But Buddha figured it out. He figured out that the real challenge in these practices was how to maintain his openness in the middle of adversity. And if you read uh, the early scripture, scriptural accounts of how he awakened and he, how he dealt with all these ascetic practices, it's really true. He said, you know, I had the practice of um, not breathing. And uh, there would be a roaring in my ears and it would be a terrible experience. But I maintained my mindfulness throughout this practice. And then he would say, well, it didn't wake me up, <laughs> but at least I stayed open to it. <laughs> That's the thing. Because normally adversity will call forth the self. Usually, adversity is something that interferes with the personal projects of the self. And we know what happens. We close up. Just 
Just watch next time somebody treats you disrespectfully. What's going to happen? You're going to close up. You know? How quickly we reach for the toga and for the thatch. What happens when somebody in Kinhan tells us to put their hands in shashu instead of in gasho? Well, we go into protection mode. <laughs> I've seen a remake of Lost in Space, Danger Will Robinson. You know? <laughs> That's the phrase that comes up when, you know, in situations like that, danger, danger. But this is where we need to be in contact with bodhicitta. When the protection mode arises, we have to ask ourselves, what is our aspiration in practice? Practice helps us to notice when we're reaching for the toga, when we're reaching for protection. And to be curious about that. Oh, I'm reaching for that toga right now. I want to strike back at that person who hurt my feelings. Curiosity is great. It gives us a great way to stay open in adversity, as does compassion, as does wisdom. But this is our biggest challenge. How do we stay open in adversity? Because otherwise, we're not going to be any good to anybody. So, going back to Saul, there he is. He's blind. He has to be led by the hand. He's terrified. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus transmits a practice to him. Uh, Jesus says, get up and go to the city and you'll be told what to do. Just like Sashin. <laughs> Just like we did this morning. Get up, go to the cynical, and the forms will tell you what to do. <laughs> Just put one foot in front of the other. So Saul does that. We would say, just throw yourself into the house of Buddha. And we, we will be set in motion from the side of Buddha. So the second part of Saul's awakening, the one that takes place on the corner of straight and narrow, is a little bit more like our style. The scales fall from his eyes. But that's the beginning of practice. It's not the end point of practice. That's the beginning of practice. It's then when Saul is baptized, when he eats rites and drinks tea, when he goes about his daily life. Remember, it's the awakened mind that generates the aspiration for awakening. The bodhicitta that we want to develop is the determination to use every opportunity to open the Dharma eye. If we were going to open our eyes, it wouldn't be with a blinding flash of light. 
It wouldn't be with some dramatic effort because we like our eyes. We'd like to treat them kindly and gently. If we tried to open our eyes with some dramatic effort, we might end up like Saul, blind. Instead, we treat our eyes with deliberate care. We just want a quiet determination to see the Dharma in all things. In a little while, we'll chant, Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. That's bodhicitta. Bodhicitta leads towards the opening of the Dharma eye. So this is uh, from Dogen in Genjo Koan. When you have still not fully realized the Dharma in body and mind, you think it's sufficient. But when the Dharma fills your body and mind, you know that something is missing. we think that we're sufficient in the Dharma, our eyes are really closed. If we know that something is missing, we open our eyes to it. Um, this next passage in Dogen is a great example of bodhicitta. You know, Dogen sailed to China to study there and to learn the way. And he sailed back. And uh, at some point when he was sailing on the ocean, he must have noticed that he couldn't see any land anywhere. It's like boarding a boat and sailing into a broad and shoreless sea. You see nothing as you gaze about but a wide circle of sea. Yet, the great ocean is not cir circular, and it's not square. It has other inexhaustible features. It's like a glittering palace. It's like a necklace of precious jewels. Yet, it appears for the moment to the range of your eyes simply as an encircling sea. It's the same with all things, he says. I think that's great. There's Dogen you know, sailing towards the ocean, and he sees what everybody would see, just this bare circle of ocean. And it's an opportunity for him to open his Dharma eye. He sees it, and he recognizes this is the story of our lives. Right? We only see as far as the eye can reach. But we know that Dharma gates are boundless. We know that the features of the ocean are really infinite in variety.
The ocean looks round to our land-conditioned eyes. But our practice is to be open, to be fluid in our understanding. And so we should ask, you know, what does this scene look like if I see it with the eyes of water? What does this scene look like if I see it with the eyes of dragons? Dragons lived in the water, you know, in Dogen's time. And they saw water as a palace. Or as a necklace of jewels, Dogen says. We can see water that way, too. It's great, you know, it's great to live in this time with all of its stresses because we have that one picture of Earth taken from space that we always see. And it's blue and it's white. And what we're really seeing is water, right? That's what we're seeing in that picture. It's blue. It's like a jewel. And it's so clearly like a jewel when we see it from space. It's great to have things remind us that if we open our eyes, we can see them differently. Uh, let me ask for any thoughts or questions or reflections on that. Yes. I like the, your comments about Set it down. But actually, I'm of course joking, but I think they, um, um, what's implied to me in there is the you can't really make a mistake if you don't act. And there's a um, sort of implicit um, movement or action or following or intention that's embodied in the uh, opportunity. You know, when we're faced with adversity, one of the best things we can do is say, huh, you know, you know, just to take a moment and breathe and think, what is happening here? And what stance do I want to take towards it? Right? Any adversity, adversity in business, adversity in sitting position, 
diversity in giving Dharma talks, anything, you know, it's always good to say, huh, let it sink in. Yeah. Yeah. And the things that really help us at that point are our curiosity, our wisdom, and our compassion. That's what helps us. I was going to say, I think uh, with the Saul or Paul story, some other stories that I could think of, I think like, like what always strikes me is how important other human beings are yeah. like in those stories. Yeah. And so like the direct encounter with the divine yeah. broke Saul. Yeah. Like it didn't it wasn't helpful. I mean, maybe in a certain sense it was helpful, but like, I mean, he's blind, right? But it's other human beings that got him to where he needed to be. And it was the touch of another human being yeah. Yeah. that like healed him. That awakens him. And so think about like us sitting together <laughs> and practicing together. Um, like how vital it is to just have other people to practice with. So I just, I just don't think it's, you know, Buddha was able to do it, but even him, you know, he had a bunch of teachers, you know, he had a group of people he practiced with, and yeah, he went away for a little while, but it was even the girl that gave him the rice, yeah. you know, yeah. that, where, you know, where that sustained him and long enough to yeah. uh, be able to find his way. So anyway, I think it's, I think it's actually very, like that part of me, like, that part of the story is very touching. I agree. Like, yeah. Right. If if it hadn't been for his companions on the path, um, Saul would have died. He was blind. He's got the instruction to go to Damascus. He can't even see the road. <laughs> right. He wasn't eating or drinking. That would be it. Christianity would be altered forever mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for for. The merchants, or the tax collectors, or the Roman soldiers, or whoever it was that was marching with Saul on, on the path, those are the people who saved Christianity. <laughs> you are the people who are preserving the Buddha way. It's okay to make one mistake after another. That is the Buddha way. If we can keep our eyes open. It's easier to carry in a good way uh, if we're not continually blinded over and over again. That's right. Uh, And so, like, doing Sashin, sitting with the Sangha, I had like a difficult student, difficult situation with a student on Tuesday morning, and here's a talk on Monday night, helped me keep my eyes open when my scales wanted to go up and make the student, you know, like, uh, the enemy or, you know, just. So I think that's the important part too, is just to realize that it's not so easy. It's not so like if we don't cross a line, then we're awakened and stay awake. Uh, yeah. The need for support by sangha and the need for ongoing practice. We don't cross a line and then awaken and stay awakened. Uh, Dogen talked about uh, Buddha goes beyond Buddha. Right. Buddha awakens, but that's the beginning of Buddhism, not the end of Buddhism. <laughs> you know, 
our practice is to move forward. And we need help or sangha or something to, to move forward. Um, you know, we're, we're going to do a memorial service for your grandma today. And uh, this morning at breakfast, I was kind of pissed off at somebody. And Mary said to me, well, we should do a memorial service for him, too, in addition to Nick's grandma. <laughs> right. We need Sangha to remind us about what is our aspiration. Right? To do harm? Sometimes, you know, we have the desire to do harm, but our aspiration is to save all beings, to be helpful to all. Other thoughts? Because I usually think of it as something that's negative. But when you said adversity is only adversity because it challenges the self, yeah. um, a mistake in the way that I usually understand it is something that makes me feel challenged because it makes me feel inadequate in some way. Or like it's a very self-ish yeah. experience. Yeah. But if a mistake in this context is good, yeah. Then and it doesn't involve a challenge to the self. Then I don't. I don't know what it is. I think it always involves a challenge to the self. The question is, can we put that aside or not? <laughs> right. You know. So mistake. It, I mean, let's take the mundane example of forms. Mistake after mistake. We're all going to make mistakes in forms. There would be no way to learn the forms without doing that, or unless. As Tim suggested, we did nothing. But if we're going to do something, there would be no way to learn how to do it without making mistakes. Right? So, yes, there are mistakes that um, bring us forward rather than make us reach for the toga. Right? But uh, we have to be able to take that initial reaction, that self-ish reaction, and see it for what it is. Oh, yeah. There it is again, you know. I've only had this conditioning all of my life. <laughs> You'd think it would drop away completely by now, <laughs> but it doesn't, so there it is. I can say, I think the difficulty with uh, mistakes is there's just a lot of judgment in them. But if you really think about what like a mistake is, is like not conforming to essentially a mental construct. Right, like so, like you you set up mentally like this is the appropriate way, and somehow body and action doesn't conform to that, and that literally happens thousands of times a day. Yeah, right, because we can't conform to our mental concepts, right, and so like the ability to be aware, and oh, I think what we do is we identify the self with those mental constructs, mm. right. So then it's always a failure. And then we can end up beating each other up and all that stuff. But if we can look at it and be like, oh, this is just like a mental construct and there's no way for me to actually fully conform to this, it sheds light on just, for me at least, how I navigate the world. You know, because I'm always trying to hit this bar that I'm creating myself that's yeah. impossible to hit. Yeah. Um, can I add something yeah. to that? I think you're right. There's no way to conform to this. 
in part because often we're trying to conform to our idea of the world, and the world is not that. We can't conform to our idea because the world will tell us that, no, that's not the right idea. That doesn't really work in this situation. Right? We can't conform to our ideas because they're inadequate. So the challenge is to be open. Yeah, and as Nick said, like, those scales keep coming up, so the mistakes keep happening over and over. Just being aware, recognizing of what that yeah. pattern is, is useful to me at least. Any other thoughts or comments? And also about like the concept of like the risk to like because it, it's like risking having the self be hurt, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but not in a way that's like physically risky, but in a way that maybe feels emotionally risky. Exactly. Uh, and the willingness to remain open and the willingness to risk making mistake after mistake for the sake of living a more fulfilling, vital life. Right. It's good to bring up fear in that context yeah. because it's not just, you know, lashing out, uh, re retaliating. It's, you know, stuff makes us afraid and we would tend to close up. We would tend to protege. Right? But, uh, right. The, the end result of that aspiration is uh, phobia. Right? <laughs> Can't leave my house. Also, good to bring up shame. Yeah. There's a, that comes, that definitely comes with risk, and I think it, or that potential, <coughs> and I think it takes a lot of practice right, to kind of let go of the possibility of shame, and let shame stand in the way of, of, of taking a risk. And Shame and embarrassment, you know, who likes that? And, and, and how often do we have to say, okay, I'm willing to have the feeling of embarrassment if I have to, because it's worth it to do this. Even if I do it wrong and people laugh at me, it's worth it to do it. And I'm, and I'm willing to feel embarrassed. That's, that's what lets us go forward into something that's potentially shame, you know, going to shame us, is that willing to have the feeling it's not comfortable great I'm looking forward to talking with everybody and Dokusan we can extend the discussion then